Well, good evening. Uh, Our reading this evening comes from the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3, uh, 14 to 21. And I think most of you will be quite good at finding Ephesians in your Bible by now. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And this is what it says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So we return to the book of Ephesians uh, once again, um, this time as part of a series uh, looking at the prayers of Paul. And uh, it's just as well that we do, because we look at this, and, and it's got some of the most wonderful, beautiful, practical theology written throughout it. And I think it's quite instructive when we think about what prayers we might utter ourselves. Now, as you'll be aware, the book of Ephesians is interesting on a number of levels, and not least because we actually know quite a lot about the church in Ephesus. Uh, when Paul arrived in Ephesus in uh, Acts 19, uh, there were already 12 men steeped in the scriptures, ready to receive. And what followed was an almighty working of God over two years where the preaching was powerful, where there was uh, teaching and accompanying signs and wonders so that those around the church were actually filled with fear. And the name of Jesus Christ was elevated, was glorified. And it comes at the end of that time when Paul is getting ready to leave, he's just about to leave, the church are about to stand on their own two feet, uh, that the church is commissioned in the midst of a riot. Uh, Such was the effect of the gospel, such was the the unsettling effect on those who would resist, uh, who would rebel against God, that those who profited from the temples filled with idols orchestrated uh, great disturbance in the city. I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that, that, that the very message of God, that the people of God could not just simply be ignored. And it ends up with a great riot. But what saddens me is that by the time we get to the book of Ephesians, this church that was born in a riot finds itself in something of a rut. As we see even in our reading today, uh, the plea of Paul to his Father in heaven is that the Ephesians would once again grasp hold of the love of God to be grounded in love. The trajectory continues. We read them about them again in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus himself picks them up on this same point. You know, he notes that they have lots of good deeds. He, he notes that they have sound doctrine, but ultimately they fail because they do not have love. 
Indeed, Jesus makes it clear that they're in peril, that they may well cease to exist as a church unless they repent back to that love they once had. So uh, the prayer that we read out there uh, at the end of chapter 3 is a conclusion to the first half of the book, uh, a summary of the opening three chapters where the mercy and love of God has been repeatedly emphasized. The status of the church as as a body of redeemed people made alive as a habitation for the Holy Spirit is made clear again and again and again in the opening chapters. So let me just uh, sum that up from Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now the only reasonable response to that is praise God. (laughs) Because what is being said there, although true for the Ephesians, is also true for us today, right now. That's the backdrop to those chapters that come before our reading. Paul bows then to the Father from whom everyone comes that's ever existed with the plea that the limitless riches of his glory from out of there would come a strengthening through the Spirit. Uh, But it's a strengthening with a purpose that Christ would dwell in our hearts. Now, uh, the Greek word there uh, that lies behind it, uh, it's a very strong word indeed. Uh, Sometimes we think of dwell. I think it's, it's good to really grasp what's going on. Uh, because this word really tries to say, not just that simply that Jesus would stay over, not just that he might have uh, the guest room, but that he would dwell. He would be the master of the house. It would be his house. Not just that we would allow a little bit of room for him to stay over. You know, where you live uh, changes your identity. You know, how you're identified. Uh, We're singing about uh, Jesus the Nazarene. Uh, Jesus, of course, wasn't born there, but he was raised there. And in Matthew 2.23, that's what he's described uh, as Jesus uh, from uh, Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, because that's where he was. Where you live changes your identity. The interesting thing, though, is that when Jesus lives in us, our identity changes. So uh, let me repeat, when Jesus dwells he is no lodger he is the one that truly lives in the house he is the one that is the head of the house he's not a guest he's not a silent member of the house away in his own wee room it means that christ dwells in his home That reminds me of a story that I have to share. It was a story that I was told uh, when I was a child, and I think it helps illustrate this point. Um, I remember being told uh, this story. uh, There was a man who once had this house. Uh, I say house. It was probably better described as a palace. Uh, Room after room after room, floor after floor. Anyway, the man was quite rightly proud of his house. Uh, It's incredible beauty. But uh, by being such a magnificent house, it also attracted uh, the wrong kind of attention. And it wasn't long before there was a knock at his door. 
And he goes down as the master of his house, as the owner of the house. He goes to see who it is. He opens it up and the devil is standing there wanting entry into his house. And of course he knows that if he opens up the door, his house will be ruined. It will be destroyed. And so ensues a mighty struggle, a great battle as he tries to keep the devil out of the house. They fought. And he barely manages to get the door closed. He's there, out of breath. He knows he could not do that again. He couldn't face him again when the knock comes again. And so somewhat weary, he opens the door just a crack, just a little bit. And of course, outside this time, Jesus is standing there. And he is wanting access. He wants into this man's house. So he responds to the knocking on the door. He says, that's fantastic. He thinks, this is brilliant. If Jesus is living there, A, you know, I'm quite important because he's living in my house. Uh, but B, this will solve my problem. And so he invites Jesus in. He gives Jesus the greatest room in the house. Well, the very next day, the door is knocking away again. He opens the door and again, the battle ensues because the devil is wanting access into this house. And he is fighting ferociously to gain access. And this time the man barely gets it. This time he's bruised, he's battered, he's breathing heavily. And he looks up and Jesus is there and says, well, why didn't you help me? Why didn't you help me when I was struggling to close the door? And of course, Jesus says, well, I've got one room. He didn't try and get into that room. So the man goes, right, okay, well, okay, Jesus, I'll give you the top floor to the house. That's not a great sacrifice. I mean... The house was that large, you'd probably have to very rarely interact with Jesus at all. But he gives him the top floor of the house, and guess what? That's not enough. And so the same scenario plays out again, until eventually the man is in the exact same place, battered and bruised, this time bleeding, out of breath. And he looks at Jesus standing there and says, why didn't he help? Wouldn't go to the top floor. So the man decides, right, I'll give you half of the house. And you can see what's going to happen. You can see that that is not enough. And so again, he finds himself in the exact same place. And he looks at Jesus again and says, why did you not help? <laughs> I have half the house. And so he gives Jesus all but one room, the throne room, the room where really the decisions are ultimately made, where the power really resides in that house. He gives Jesus the rest of it. But you know what's going to happen. You know the scenario, and again, the man ends up in the exact same place, having barely closed the door this time. And he looks at Jesus, and he recognizes what needs to be done. And so he hands the keys over to Jesus instead. and says, right, Jesus, it's your house. And he goes to go pack his bag. And of course, at that point, Jesus, now, go enjoy the house. The next morning, when there is a knock at the door, Jesus answers. The devil sees him and says, I'm terribly sorry, sir. I didn't realize you lived in this house. And he flees. Now that story rather wonderfully illustrates exactly what we are like. You know, we'll give Jesus a room, a portion, a floor, a part, a half. Maybe all but a piece of our hearts. All too often we want to sit on the throne of our hearts. Sometimes, having given Jesus the house, we find that over the years we've managed to sneak ourselves back into the throne room. (laughs) So we get to call the shots. And then when it goes so horribly wrong, we have the temerity to turn to him and say, why didn't you help us? (laughs) When we read this prayer of Paul, and when he says that Christ would dwell in us, That's the same as saying all to Jesus, 
I surrender. Now, last week, um, during the holiday club service in the morning, uh, I mentioned that Jesus is even now knocking on the door of our hearts. Uh, We see that in Revelation 3, verse 20. Listen carefully. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So please, just like that story, just like that text, just like the word dwell, imagine your heart like a house. A place where all of you resides. Though it would be accurate to imagine that house as one with the door that is bolted and the windows are locked, the welcome mat removed, the curtains drawn, a house largely decaying in need of repair. A house with no lights on. A house in darkness. A house that is quite lonely. It is to that house that Jesus says, I am knocking on the door, let me in. Let me bring light and life. And what I love about that is, is we understand that that's what we mean by dwell. And when Jesus dwells, words like fullness of God make sense. It changes everything because where Jesus lives as Lord of the house, there is no room for anything else. I mean, how could there be darkness when he's brought in the light? How could we compromise with death when he has brought life? And that's why the next three chapters of Ephesians, uh, Paul tells them to walk the walk. (laughs) To actually look like what they are. Uh, It's all very well declaring that they're the people of God, but he then goes on to tell them, so now look like it. Walk in love. Show the difference that it makes to have Christ dwell in you. And specifically, he repeats the point that you should love one another. And of course, that's where our prayer continues. For if Jesus does indeed dwell within us, then, as we see in the rest of verse 17, we are to be rooted and grounded in love. Because it's only by being rooted and grounded in the love of God that we can begin to see the immeasurable scale of that love. You know, the funny thing about love is that it's impossible to describe. Not really unless you've experienced it. Unless you've experienced love, it's impossible to describe what it is. And even more so when it comes to this love of God. It's interesting, we're told to comprehend something which is incomprehensible, to know something which we cannot know the fullness of. And that can give us sort of the wrong end of the stick. When we're told to comprehend or to know something, it sounds as if we're supposed to try and put God or the love of God under a microscope and we study it and we look at it until eventually we've got a good handle on it and we know what it is. The Hebrew people knew that that was impossible. The Hebrew people had many, many, many different words for love. But they had one special word for the love of God. That's it. Because it was indescribable, incomprehensible, unbreakable, eternally enduring, covenant-founding love of God. In the New Testament, the same point is being made. Uh, in First uh, John 3.16, it tells us, you wouldn't even know what love was, were it not for the cross. The notion that we could know his love in fullness, that we would comprehend it, uh, comprehend it completely, is ridiculous. Uh, The Greek word behind comprehend, 
It would be better understood as uh, uh, grasping or seizing hold of. To, to comprehend, as it were, to, to, to really just hold on for dear life. I like that. I think that gets us in the right place. Now, very often, uh, you know, when we read it, we can think, comprehend, and we kind of put ourselves above the love of God, and we look at it, and we examine it, etc., like I was saying. But when we understand that it really means to grasp onto it and to hold on for dear life, I think we have a better understanding of ourselves in the relationship. We're not to intellectually grasp it as such. We are to experience the love of God and then we can know what it is. The way I always imagine this, <laughs> every time I imagine this, uh, as most of, you, most of you will know, I've got four children, um, ranging in sizes and shapes and genders and all manner of different things. When they were tiny, each and every one of them had to go swimming. Okay, it's a life skill. I come from an island. It's quite important that we know how to swim. And so, uh, when they were babies, when they were just a couple of weeks old, if they were big enough, into the water they went. uh, With me. (laughs) And it's amazing. The very first thing you're supposed to teach a a tiny infant uh, when they get into the water is to hold on to the side. Uh, Because the hope is that if they were to fall into a body of water, that they would instinctively reach out to the side and hopefully their life would be saved. That's the very first thing you're supposed to do. And so I would take my infant child, a couple of weeks old, maybe three weeks old, into the water and I would say to them, hold on, hold on. They can't. (laughs) So I would take their little hands. And I would put it up maybe on the side of the pool that we're swimming on while I whisper encouragement into the ear, hold on, hold on. And they can't. And so my hands go on top of theirs while I say, hold on. That's what it means here when it says comprehend. That image That's why Paul says, you know what? You need to pray that the very strength of God would enable you to hold on to that love. (laughs) The scale of it is beyond your comprehension, and that's okay. Just hold on. Just hold on. Never let go. Because if you do, you sink below the water. If you let go... If you let go of the love of God, then you cease to allow him to change you. Our attitudes towards each other change because we have lost the essence of what it means to be a child of God. We have lost the powerful witness of the changing power of the gospel when we stop grasping on to the love of God. The love of God goes from the depths of human need to the heights of heaven. It it plumbs the very depths, delving down into the very squalor of human life, so that if you were to go down to the very, very, very bottom, what do we find but the love of God? A love that's not going to leave us there, but will take us and change us and mold us and raise us until eventually we are seated in glory, face to face with the one who rescued us. And so the love of God is the means by which we are changed daily to be more like him, to be like the one who is dwelling in the house. So, 
that means there's some rather significant implications for us when we look at this prayer. It is appropriate that we appreciate the love that has been poured out on us. I may have said this before, but I am very much amazed how quickly human beings can get used to almost anything. Um, When we say that God loves us, uh, when we say that we are the children of the Most High, and we're not struck with wonder, (laughs) we're not struck with awe, there is a danger there because we can become quite blasé about it. We can actually begin to imagine that God's quite lucky to have me, really. In that state, we find ourselves trying to take possession of the throne room of our hearts once again. It's appropriate that we also recognize that the Ephesian warnings of a church that starts off in a riot and ends up in a rut. These warnings are delivered because this is a church that had lost its love. Uh, They had, uh, as we see in Revelation, good deeds, they had sound doctrine. They had lost their love. Their passion for God. It was a church that was no longer being changed daily by God. A people that had ceased to be the powerful evidence of the gospel in their lives. And so as individuals, we should be mindful and once again, each and every one of us should be pleading to God that he would give us the strength to hold on. (laughs) But Ephesians is also written to a church. And as a church, there is a warning there. We need to have front and center the love of God and we need to hold on to it. We need to ask that God would help us to hold on, to grasp it. Because if not, we're going to be like the Ephesians. And the warnings that we see in Revelation will become the warnings for us. It's just the same. No church is is immune. Every church is always at the crossroads, as it were, to go the way that God wants you to go or not. To allow him to change you or not. To hold on to the love of God and to see that change us. Reflected in us or not. So the challenge is, uh, are we going to be a church which causes a riot or a church quite comfortable in a rut? Uh, You know, as Christians, uh, actually, to be fair, it's not enough uh, to encounter people. Uh, It's not enough for people to even come here and for them to go away thinking that we are nice. Um, uh, If any of you know me, I'm not nice. I'm not safe. I should warn you now. I should not be considered nice. I should not be considered harmless because I am a child of God. We should not be considered safe because we should be filled with the Spirit of God. We should be intent on seeing a world turned upside down where those who would mock our Savior end up praising Him. Where those who would reject him end up running to the cross. Where those who are blind can finally see his face. We should not be safe. (laughs) Because we're in the hands of an incredible God. And so, as we look at the prayer of Paul, we should be compelled to make this our prayer. So that like Paul, we plead that Christ would 
dwell in us. Which means to be changed utterly. Without even a portion held back. That should be our prayer as a church. At all times. So that the work that that God is doing in us would continue. That our lives would be for his glory that we would be the reason that other people are compelled to praise his name. That we would act in love. That we would be the hands and voice of God reaching into the darkest of situations. The lesson of this text is that we need to be the people within whom God dwells. Who through his grace and mercy enables us to just simply hold on to his love. To be those people grasping on to the love and ultimately, for his glory, changing the world around us. Not content where we are, but to allow God to change us and lead us and do something within us far beyond anything we can imagine. Now that is a prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, mindful of these words of Paul, we do indeed bow before you. We do indeed ask out of the the limitless grace and mercy that you have that you would pour it out on us with a strengthening, a strengthening with a purpose that we would know your love that we would grasp on to your love, that Christ would dwell in each and every one of us and as, as a collective body, Lord. That we would be changed utterly, not holding back, not holding pieces of ourselves, but all of us to you. So we'd be changed, that we'd be the evidence of your gospel, the evidence of the power of what you can do, the evidence of what love from a mighty God does with frail and broken people. And so, Lord, as we come before you just now, we pray that we would give you the glory because of who we are, because of the masterpieces you are busy making in each and every one of us. Renew the work tonight, we pray, and let us be able to reflect your love to all of those around us, I pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.